All right, I think we're going to go ahead and get started here. Um, so, um, welcome everyone to the April 8th seminar. Um, our speaker today is Dr. Jamie Myers, who will be speaking, as you see, on the HIV medical care and case management in criminal justice settings. Um, the CME code today for people is XV, uh, XW for seven. Lowercase. Lowercase XW. Oh, is that right? It's case sensitive? Oh, that's so complicated. XW47. All right. Um, so, uh, Dr. Meyer um, actually is a Dartmouth grad from undergraduates, uh, 2000, and not that it's necessarily pertinent, but along with her husband, um, also 2000, who uh, is up here with their three kids. Apparently they had a great time watching Dartmouth baseball in the cold yesterday. <laughs> we won. <laughs> her, her husband was a pitcher? First baseman. First baseman yeah. on the, the college team. Apparently the kids are... Uh, following along. Um, so after, uh, after graduating from Dartmouth, um, uh, Jamie went on to UConn and then uh, did residency in Columbia and then moved to Yale where she did fellowship uh, both in ID and an interdisciplinary HIV prevention program as well as then getting the biostatistics and FE masters. Um, her interest all along appears to have been around the intersection of HIV women and the criminal justice system, um, hence the topic today, um, and has been working both clinically in that setting in Connecticut as well as doing research in that setting. And research both supported by currently by a K award, uh, looking at approaches to improving outcomes in relation to women with HIV um, or intersecting with the criminal justice system, and then also through support from Gilead, looking at prevention in women at risk of HIV connected with the criminal justice system. Um, and Dr. Mayer has um, no conflicts of interests and pertinent to today's presentation, and there's no commercial support for today's activity. Uh, nurses in the room need to stay for a majority of the session to claim your continuing ad credits. And I think that's it. Yes? Yes, I just like to acknowledge uh, Karina Danvers at Yale, who is the uh, AIDS Education and Training Center uh, director for the programs there. She's my counterpart. And uh, I saw her last week at a faculty development meeting. Uh, when we knew that we had this title, uh, I, I know that they, they, have, they do fabulous work uh, in training uh, for uh, incarcerated providers, you know, incarcerated people and maybe incarcerated and providers too. They let us out. <laughs> and, uh, so and I immediately emailed her and I said, Who, who's the best speaker I can get from Yale to do this? And we have her. So thank you for coming. Yep. So, okay. so thanks so much for presenting today. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. Um, so I'll talk to you today about HIV medical care and case management in criminal justice settings. I'll try to make it as clinically you know, pertinent as possible and um, I'm very flexible and uh, if you want to ask questions as we go along, you know, feel free to stop me, otherwise I will hang around afterwards and happy to answer any questions. So um, I, as I was mentioned, I have no conflicts of interest. I do have research uh, support currently from NIDA, and I am a Dartmouth alum, even though I'm a trader and now work for you. 
Um, and I wanted to acknowledge uh, AATC and uh, Dr. Waddell and Kristen Rose for um, hosting me here, and Rick Altice, who is my faculty mentor and peer and colleague and uh, started the um, HIV in Prisons program at Yale, um, and some of these slides are his. So um, today we're going to discuss the criminal justice system, including um, opportunities for accessing um, individuals for health interventions. Uh, we'll talk about the epidemiology of HIV and related comorbidities in justice-involved populations. We'll review some evidence-based strategies for preventing, diagnosing, and managing HIV in these populations. And we'll use some sample cases to highlight um, logistical issues in delivering what we know is evidence-based HIV care within correctional facilities. And um, these cases are from uh, my clinical practice at York Correctional Institute for Women. Um, there's a picture, as lovely as it may look, uh, which is the only uh, correctional facility for women in the state of Connecticut. It houses about 1,600 women, and um, I've had my HIV practice there for the past six years. So this mess of a slide is the criminal justice system, basically. Um, and this is supposed supposedly the simplified version, okay? But I'll just, um, I don't really have a pointer, but I'll just try to walk you through it. So when we talk about the criminal justice system, a lot of times people talk about, you know, prison or jail, but it's actually something that's much broader than that. And we try to use these different um, points all along as points of access for, for accessing individuals. So someone allegedly commits a crime, that's sort of on the far left-hand side of the screen. And they go through a process of entry into the system, right, which is the light blue. Um, crime is reported, they're arrested. They might spend the night in police lockup, which is usually on a local level. And then they undergo prosecution and pretrial services. Um, some people during the dark blue period of pretrial services are, um, are held in a jail. So they are held in a correctional facility. Um, there's some separation here between felonies and misdemeanors, but um, eventually uh, people are moving to the light purple where they undergo adjudication, right? they have to go to court, they undergo some sort of trial. If they're acquitted, they sort of move out of the system. If they're convicted of a crime, they move into a sentencing and sanctions phase, which is in the orange. And eventually they're sentenced to some sort of um, term in some sort of corrections option. So, if generally if they're sentenced to less than a year, uh, mostly for misdemeanors, they, are, they go to a jail. Um, and depending on how different states operate, that can be managed by different people. We'll talk about that. Um, some people who are sentenced to longer term, uh, generally over a year, go to prison. Um, people can um, also be sentenced to probation, where they have to meet with a probation officer usually once a week, do some sort of reporting. They have some sort of conditions to meet, um, to, which is called a, a diversion program, basically. Um, and then after prison, people can have to serve a certain period of time on parole. So each of these points are kind of potential points of access. So we can access people when they're under adjudication, because they're in jail. There's literally a captive population for health interventions. We can access them on probation, and that's currently what my K is about, um, accessing women while they're on probation for HIV prevention intervention. Um, we can access people while they're in jail, while they're in prison, and while they're on parole. 
So when you look at the components of the criminal justice system in general, even though we tend to focus on jails and prisons, they really only make up about 30% of the criminal justice population. The majority of people under supervision are out on probation or parole. So just a quick survey, because I don't know exactly who I'm talking to here. Um, how many of you take care of patients with HIV? And there's a lot more patients around here than I, than I had expected you were mentioning. And how many of you take care of patients under police detention? Uh, or how many of you have taken care of people with a history of incarceration? And the bigger question is, do you ask about it? So um, I'm often asked when I talk um, sort of some practical issues, you know, when you have a patient sitting in front of you, how do you ask them about this, right? You might, I mean, if someone's handcuffed to the bed with a police officer outside the room, it's pretty obvious they're under police you know, detention. But the question is, you know, um, how do you talk to people about their history of incarceration and, and when they're not currently in a facility? And, um, and sort of, is that relevant to their care? You know, should I ask, will it, um, should I ask about why, why they were there, right? Will it, will it be relevant to their care? How will it affect our patient-provider relationship? You know, if you find out someone was locked up 20 years ago for child pornography, you know, will it affect how you, how you take care of them? Um, so the question sort of becomes how to sensitively screen for justice involvement. And what I generally tell people is that um, knowing about people's history of incarceration and recent, especially, interactions with the criminal justice system is important because it can be a marker of risk. Right? It can be a marker of risk for HIV, a marker of risk for hepatitis C, a uh, marker of risk for substance use, um, and it can also be a marker of discontinuity of care. And I'll explain to you why. So just want to think about that in terms of um, uh, thinking about the, the continuity of care factor, right? Anytime someone moves from, we call it um, uh, coercive mobility, right? They're without choice moved from community settings maybe the criminal justice system and back, in and out and in and out, that is a period of discontinuity of care. And um, you know, sometimes it can be important to know about these things also because some people are have mandatory reporting. They have to go to a probation officer or a parole officer and submit urine drug screens um, and, and prove that they're engaging in something positive. And so part of their healthcare engagement can be, you know, a positive thing. Anyway, just to just to think about as you're taking care of patients. So one of the reasons why, um, why uh, you know, it might not um, seem as relevant maybe uh, to talk about incarceration here in New Hampshire is because, well, this is the estimated total population supervised by U.S. adult correctional systems in 2014. And look at New Hampshire, way down in terms of the actively incarcerated. And um, there's, just to orient you, I, I'm not sure how where I did I have a chance to look this up. There are um, three prisons uh, within, managed by the New Hampshire Department of Corrections, and these are their various um, facilities, current population count as of January 1st. So a relatively small population of women who are actively incarcerated. Um, there are three transitional housing units in New Hampshire, um, in Concord and, New, and Manchester. Those are like what was classically called uh, halfway houses. There's one transitional work center, but there's um, you know about 6,300 people at least in um, in New Hampshire who are on probation and parole. Um, that was 
three years ago. I'm sure the number is higher now. So it's stunning to think that the number of incarcerated people in Texas is, I think, in the range of the total number of people in our state. Isn't it insane? Right? Don't yeah, and California is not, and Georgia are not much better. Um, so, right, in general, and especially in Texas, there is an epidemic of mass incarceration. So the United States holds the dubious distinction of incarcerating more of its citizens than any other developed nation worldwide. Um, so that one in, at any time, one in 31 U.S. adults are behind bars or on probation or parole. Um, it, obviously, this epidemic of mass incarceration disproportionately impacts people who, um, for racial, ethnic, socioeconomic reasons, um, face other health disparities. So disproportionately impacting particularly young black men um, in urban centers. And this really compounds other health disparities, leading to worse outcomes. And if not, you know, what would a talk on incarceration be without the presentation of the, uh, the popular media view of Orange is the New Black? And I'm happy to tell you all about how that is or is not an accurate portrayal of women behind bars. Um, but if nothing else, you know, this you know, popular kind of media um, presentation of, of incarcerated women sort of have, have gotten pe people to talk about it, talk about incarceration. So in general, we have an unhealth of correctional populations. Why? So over the past 30 years, there's been a 293% growth in the number of people um, incarcerated in the United States. Um, of more re this graph ends in 2009. More recently, it's kind of flatlined. Um, and along with that, we see a disproportionate population who experience mental illness or psychiatric disorders, a disproportionate experiencing substance use disorders, and infectious diseases, including HIV, but also hepatitis C, B, TB, and sexually transmitted infections. So uh, concentration of the HIV epidemic is, is particularly pertinent to this um, this population, one in seven people living with HIV in the United States passes through the criminal justice system every year. So people are, you know, interfacing. There's real, there is a real concentration of this epidemic behind bars. And incarceration itself is actually an independent risk factor um, for HIV. And like I was saying before, a, a predictor sort of, of non-adherence to HIV treatment and care because of this discontinuity issue. And because we have this concentration of the HIV epidemic, <coughs> the prevalence of HIV behind bars is three to five times higher than the prevalence of HIV in the surrounding communities. That being said, we do some things right for HIV while people are incarcerated. So that um, really, the AIDS-related mortality um, is, is similar for people who are uh, living with HIV and in prison compared to the general population. Um, so the purple bars here are, are state inmates. Um, in 1995, there are about 34% AIDS-related deaths relative to all deaths. Um, and by 2008, you know, because of really the advent of um, antiretroviral therapy, we see about 3% um, AIDS-related deaths relative to all deaths um, of bionavirus. And it's lower now. And I'll explain to you a little bit why that is. So we, but we also have a concentration of other infectious diseases, just that everything like bombards this population. So um, very high rates of hepatitis C um, at 8 to 21 times higher among people who are incarcerated than the general population. 
um, TB that's four times as prevalent as the general population. Very common, especially affecting women, um, common STDs, highly prevalent among incarcerated um, women, uh, many of them who, the same risk factors, same behaviors that put you at risk of STDs, HIV, Hep C, um, also put you at risk of incarceration. So um, prostitution, homelessness, um, substance use, injecting drug use in particular. Um, they do um, routine screening for syphilis among women um, entering prisons and jails, and one-third of women entering jails screen positive for syphilis. So that the, in New York City anyway, which is primarily Rikers, um, about the, um, the syphilis rates were a thousand times compared to the general population. So this is a map of hep C, um, seroprevalence, this is seroprevalence, so um, take it for what you will, but um, this is the sort of largest, um, largest overview that we have of the hep C seroprevalence among um, prisoners. And compared to about 1.6% prevalence in the general population, this is the pre point prevalence of, um, of hep C among prisoners. So oh, here, 41%. I don't see New Hampshire or Connecticut on here, but um, the closest I guess we get is New York is 11%. But you can see you know, the, the prevalence of hep C is just extraordinarily high in this population. And, um, I won't go into this as much today, but I'm happy to talk more about it. We're not really testing routinely, and we're not really treating routinely. So it's problematic. Um, it's also, um, the other issues around incarcerated population is that we have, um, have a disproportionate population who experience serious mental illness. So that in state prisons, the prevalence of serious mental illness is about two to four times higher than the general community, which can complicate care, right? And so, and this is a population that um, a disproportionate amount really experience other chronic diseases, other health issues, whether it's um, you know obesity-related, obesity hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, um, and part of it is also that you know we incarcerate lots of people in this country, and there's, in general, as there is in the general population, there's been a graying of the prison population. So that the number of people, now, sorry, but they call elderly here age 55 and older, take it for what you will, but the, um, there's been a 550% increase um, uh, between 1992 and 2012 in the um, proportion of people who are age 55 and older. So kind of all these comorbidities and all these, um, as well as age-related chronic diseases kind of get um, hit on the um, incarcerated population. Um, these are sort of the prevalence of various um, psychiatric disorders within correctional facilities. And the latest data that I could find is actually from 2004. But if you look, and part of that is because a lot of facilities just don't screen uh, and don't screen well. And when they do screen, they don't really report it to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Um, but um, in terms of compared to the general population where about 11% of people experience any symptom of a mental health disorder or psychiatric disorder, about 49% of state inmates experience it. And 24% um, of state inmates um, experience have meet criteria for major depression. I guess this is DSM-4 compared to 8% of the general population. 43% uh, have uh, mania, just to meet criteria for mania disorder compared to 2% of the general population. 
15% uh, psychotic disorder compared to 3% of the general population, right, when we lost funding for all these major um, psychiatric facilities everywhere in this country, when all those shut down, people ended up somewhere, it was generally prison. Um, people had to go somewhere. So we, all of this kind of complicates HIV care. And sorry, Nancy, but, um, you know, part of this is the effect of the Just Say No campaign where really the war on drugs became the war on people who use drugs. I won't get up too much on my soapbox unless you let me, but um, it, it, needless to say, you know, because of, because of that, right, that is generally how we've dealt with substance use disorders in this country, is that we incarcerate people. Um, so compared to 9% of the general population who have a diagnosable substance use disorder, up to 68% of all jail inmates meet criteria for substance use disorders, and fewer than 15% receive appropriate treatment. Um, generally, the treatment for substance the treatment for substance use disorders um, within correctional facilities involves maybe medication-supported um, detoxification and then an abstinence-only approach. And I'll talk to you a little bit later about why that's so problematic. So all of this is not meant to depress you, but to say that, um, that incarceration and the criminal justice system in general presents opportunities because they are points of access for intervention. So when we, this is a paper that came out um, sort of late last year in the Journal of Public Health going through our um, HIV care cascade for people who are um, interfacing with um, prisons and jails. So here's what we normally see, right? The general community um, uh, numbers in terms of um, people, about 80% uh, people living with HIV are diagnosed. Uh, we have a drop-off to people from people who are diagnosed to then linked to care. We have another drop-off to people who are then retained in care. That's about 36% of people who are retained in care are started on antiretrovirals, but a dismal 28% of people in this country um, who are living with HIV have an undetectable viral load. Right, but it looks even worse for incarcerated populations. So upon jail um, entry prison to prison, the, in general, the population kind of looks like the community, the worst of the community population, because they're coming from the community. And during incarceration, people actually do really well. And I'll talk to you a little bit about why that is. Um, but, you know, they're under, for the most part, directly observed therapy. They have correctional officers that escort them to appointments, so there's no, uh, there's no missed appointments. Um, so people do quite well in terms of um, achieving successfully undetectable viral loads with antiretroviral therapy. And our numbers from Connecticut are actually way better than this, um, with up to 70% achieving undetectable viral load by the time of release. After release is the problem. So we put all these interventions into place while people are incarcerated to get them sober, get them taking their meds. And then after they leave, people kind of fall apart, and they fall apart very profoundly, such that um, you know only 36% of people with HIV who are diagnosed are, are linked to care um, after release, and only 21% ultimately achieve undetectable viral load. So these are the people who really fallen through the cracks, and they fall through the cracks on that transition um, from prisons or jails out into the community. Um, so the first, you know, first step in the cascade, right, is getting people diagnosed. So 
people who are incarcerated have an, we have an opportunity for diagnosis. So this was a woman that I took care of um, at York Correctional. So she was 32, and when she came into jail, um, she had severe ongoing cocaine use and a history of bipolar disorder. She's like so many people that I took care of there. And um, on intake, they go through this general screening procedure. Most facilities have this. Um, they have a, they go through a delousing procedure. There's a general nurse's visit. They place a PPD. They kind of ask about people's medical history. They um, offer her HIV testing, but she declines. Um, she's too busy kind of detoxing. All of the women in the facility have um, a urine pregnancy test, and she's positive. She's pregnant. So she is referred by the intake nurse to see the OBGYN. So that happens about a week later. A week later, she goes to see the OBGYN. She has an ultrasound that dated her pregnancy at 19 weeks. And a part, as part of her routine prenatal care, she's referred for HIV counseling and testing. Well, HIV counseling and testing, there's no rapid testing in this facility. So three weeks later, she finally gets seen by the HIV counselor. She's HIV positive. She's got a CD4 count of 189, viral load of 50,000 copies, and she's pregnant. So um, this is just sort of an example of um, how, in some ways, the right things were kind of sort of done for this patient in a bare bones sort of way. She did receive, she was offered HIV screening. Um, although she received opt-in screening, whereas HIV, the CDC recommends HIV screening for all patients in all healthcare settings, and that includes correctional settings, as opt-out screening. Um, persons at high risk should be screened at least annually, which includes people who are incarcerated. Um, separate written consent should not be required. So the whole idea that this woman had to wait for three weeks to see an HIV counselor is kind of ridiculous. And they should not require prevention counseling. Um, it, it's just one more barrier um, to getting the testing done. So, you know, in some ways the diagnosis happened kind of how, uh, it sort of, Right, like at least we got a diagnosis, but it, it sure was complicated to get there. And the little twist to the story is this woman actually knew that she had HIV. She'd been living with HIV for about 15 years, and she um, and she didn't want to get tested because she thought that she would get put into a segregation medical unit to have directly observed therapy because she also knew that she was pregnant. So that kind of goes back to the whole idea of the, you know, taking care of people with very complicated social and psychiatric disorders just compounds um, challenges with the delivery of care. So there are a lot of challenges with diagnosing HIV in correctional populations. There's the logistics, right? If you're looking at a facility, for example, with 1,600 women or a jail with really high um, turnover, um, you know, how do you have a private space to do testing? How do you, even for rapid testing, how do you find the 15 minutes to, to sort of get that done? How do you designate staffing to do testing? Um, you know, not all the intake nurses are, are, are trained in, in counseling or, you know, so how do you deal with that? And this, this issue of confidentiality kind of goes across all um, all parameters of, of healthcare delivery in correctional facilities anyway. I mean, even if we did not, even if no one knew um, 
you know, there's no red flags in a chart or anywhere, uh, in Connecticut anyway, there are still in other states, to say this is an HIV clinic, um, you know, generally inmates would know if someone was waiting to see me that the, the patient had HIV. So how do we deal with these issues around uh, confidentiality? How do we um, time HIV diagnosis and screening in a way that, that sort of is convenient and effective and acceptable to inmates? Um, what testing strategies are best, right? The, the um, CDC and others really have recommended um, universal um, opt-out testing, but there's still many places that are opt-in. And it, because it's being delivered by a correctional facility, it can seem mandatory, right? And you really don't want HIV testing to be mandatory. And kind of as a result of all this, um, only 39% of prisons routinely test people for HIV, despite the fact that everyone gets a PPD on entry. Only 39% routinely test, and about 36% of jails test. So, and jails are a population very high turnover. There's these ethical considerations around perceived coercion, right? Can um, inmates, uh, uh, especially those who are detoxing, have their untreated health, uh, mental health disorders, you know, can they participate in the consent process even though consent is not technically required, you know, uh, written consent is not required? Um, and how can we effectively link people to care? There are still states um, that just recently abolished segregated housing um, for people with HIV within prisons. So um, how do we prevent that type of thing from happening? And is there liability around <coughs> facilities diagnosing HIV and then not doing anything about it? All these things add up to missed opportunities. And um, sort of evidence of this last point is that the Human Rights Watch actually last month um, sort of lambasted Louisiana Parish Jails in a 70-page report uh, that the Louisiana Parish Jails absolutely failed to deliver HIV services. And when they asked one of the nursing directors, why don't you test, why don't we do routine testing? We can't afford to treat someone who's identified as HIV positive. So this is a facility that had not yet identified, you know, AIDS drug assistance programs, had not gotten involved in Ryan White funding at all. I mean, there's, you know, nothing that was really done. So this sort of see no evil, hear no evil, like they just didn't want to know that people had HIV because then they would have to do something about it. <clears throat> so all that being said, um, HIV testing in jails as delivered routinely as opt-out testing is highly acceptable um, to inmates. Uh, this is one of the few randomized controlled trials of it, and my colleague Rick Altiz did this. Um, in 2009 and um, Ravi Cavaseri. And basically, they went to the men's jail in New Haven and um, they offered everyone um, testing uh, immediately, which was during their initial medical screen the night of admission. They offered them uh, a randomized uh, separate group to get um, testing early on, which was uh, like the next day when they would have their mandatory physical exam. And then delayed testing, they had an arm where uh, the testing was uh, delivered seven days after arrival to the facility. And as you can see, there was a pretty high um, acceptability um, of this HIV testing, so high uptake of the testing, and no matter really when it was offered. Um, although much higher when it was um, among the men's jail and the women's jail when it was offered um, the next day. 
So people go through a lot their first night in jail. So this is the next day they undergo uh, routine opt-out testing. And there's not a lot of data on sort of how successful this is, but um, there was one study um, where they looked at uh, many jails in Florida, Louisiana, Wisconsin, and upstate New York. And overall, um, this was just sort of a demonstration project. They offered um, 33,211 voluntary rapid HIV tests. And um, they didn't ask about you know, HIV risk factors. They just sort of tested everyone. Overall, they tested 6% of their bookings, which is a lot of people. 99.9% um, received their rapid test results. I don't know why it wasn't 100. Overall, 440 had reactive rapid tests, and ultimately 422 accepted confirmatory testing. And ultimately, you had 269 people who were newly diagnosed as having HIV and then connected to care. So you see the HIV testing is not only acceptable, but it's also feasible and it's, and it's effective. And um, this was a, a meta-analysis just showing that basically people who have their HIV diagnosed in correctional settings have a much lower proportion, um, about 13% compared to 26%, um, who have a meet criteria for AIDS within three months of their diagnosis. So we're picking up people earlier, people who you might not traditionally think have HIV risk factors. Um, and so it also shows that you know, HIV testing in jails is, is um, effective. Um, okay, so we'll talk a little bit about treatment as well. Um, so this is a patient that I took care of at, at York as well. Um, she's 35. Um, she was HIV positive and, and out of care, and she reported that on her intake health screening. So she was um, sort of immediately linked into our HIV clinic. Um, where we have a dedicated um, infectious disease nurse case manager. And um, she had been in and out of jail very frequently for, uh, for prostitution. Um, so both of these things together, you know, HIV out of care and prostitution, kind of <coughs> highly problematic. We wanted to get this woman into care quickly. So she was sent to the ID nurse case manager. She went for routine phlebotomy. She ultimately came back with a CD4 count of five. And um, so at the time, this was about three years ago, she was started on Truvada, Norvir, and Rayataz, which was first line at that point. And uh, about three weeks later, she was admitted into our inpatient medical unit, uh, which is on, on the um, prison property, uh, with fevers, lymphadenopathy, and night sweats. So um, first of all, we knew that this woman was taking her medications because she had directly observed therapy with cheek checks. So someone was watching her swallow her pills every day. Um, but also, when she was admitted to the inpatient medical unit, they could monitor her very closely. So it turns out that this woman was having an iris-like reaction due to disseminated MAC. Um, so she was very quickly started on treatment. You can imagine for someone like this who experiences a lot of instability um, in and out of care, a lot of social instability and homelessness, that um, treating her uh, outside of a correctional facility could have been complicated in much, much different ways. Right, she probably would have ended up in the emergency room, but instead, all of the care was provided on site in the prison. So there are a lot of challenges to providing HIV care within the criminal justice system. Um, one is that, and this is sort of has taken me a long time to wrap my head around, but prisons and jails are not designed to deliver health care. Right, they're designed to punish, rehabilitate criminals. Right, they're not. They're not 
in the business of necessarily delivering compassionate, holistic care. So there's this general um, mistrust often of healthcare systems where prison providers are often seen as um, aligning with um, correctional systems. Um, so there's issues around control, potential conflicts of interest, and, and you know concerns about privacy. And then the other challenge is uh, just these other um, kind of comorbidities that we think of as syndemics, so multiple epidemics that sort of synergize, right? We have not just HIV in isolation in these populations, but psychiatric disorders and substance use disorders that all kind of synergize to complicate care. So the challenge is, is delivering um, holistic, compassionate care within correctional facilities to very complicated patients. There are a lot of <coughs> contributors, however, to successful treatment um, during incarceration. First and foremost is three hots and a cot. These are populations that experience a lot of social instabilities, right? So if nothing else, they have a relatively safe place to be with a roof over their heads where they know they're going to get three meals a day, and that makes it a lot easier to really be able to deal with their medical issues. Like those things are guaranteed. There's this very highly structured environment. Um, it sort of levels the playing field, uh, especially for people who have difficulty accessing healthcare systems because of low health literacy, um, transportation issues, child care issues. All of a sudden, you have sort of everyone getting the same, maybe bare bones level of care, but they're potentially getting the same level of care. About 15% um, of uh, all people while they're incarcerated at any one time get directly administered therapy. Like I said, nurses coming to their housing units, um, giving them their medications up to twice a day and watching them swallow their pills. Um, we have this stability of them potentially, mostly, sometimes temporarily being abstinent from substance use. Uh, sort of, uh, there is quite a bit of substance use that goes on uh, within prisons, um, but for the most part, people are abstinent. Um, we have the ability to treat their psychiatric disorders, especially the ones that are the most severe. Now, psychiatric disorders in general in incarcerated populations are woefully under-identified and under-treated, but sort of the most severe are at least getting treatment and engaging care. And um, HIV treatment during incarceration is protected by both federal and state law. So um, the federal law is an extension of, um, of the Eighth Amendment, which is um, the protection against uh, cruel and unusual punishment. Sort of uh, the idea is that everyone uh, should be treated for serious health needs that any lay person could identify as being a serious health need. So that includes HIV, unfortunately. And I'm not sure what the law is in New Hampshire, but in Connecticut, um, there was a, a case in which uh, the inmates in 1989, a collection of HIV inmates uh, brought suit against the state of Connecticut um, called Dovey Meacham. And um, to basically say, we should, we should be guaranteed our right to privacy, our right to HIV care, and that, um, that sort of dictates how all of the HIV care within the facilities is delivered. I'm not sure what it is in New Hampshire, but at the very least, there's the, the federal law that sort of protects that right. So that's why Louisiana got in trouble. The Louisiana Parish Jails got in trouble. Do you know if the uh, individual prison systems have budget allocations for HIV care that are tagged to the prevalence of HIV in their system? 
Or is it, on the other hand, sort of a, you know, it's a zero-sum game, and the more people that they have who are positive, the less money they have to deal with each? So, I know that every state does it differently. And um, in a lot of states, it's done differently in both in prisons as compared to jails because jails are under sort of local bureaucratic control in general and prisons are under state control so so that determines it some it, it also what dictates how care is delivered is what the state law is around um, Medicare and Medicaid suspension during incarceration so most states are supposed to just um, suspend people's Medicare some states actually continue states uh, inmates medical Medicare or Medicaid while they're incarcerated, and that can be used to pay um, for their HIV care. Um, other states uh, totally kick people off the rolls while they're incarcerated, and so then everything is on the state dollar. Um, I, I, that's sort of a roundabout way of answering your question, but that's sort of, that is, is, is more a factor of how, how care is delivered in general. Um, and, but you can qualify for the AIDS drug assistance program during incarceration. So people should be able to have access to it. Um, so this is a paper that my colleagues and I published in 2014, um, which looked at um, HIV treatment outcomes among everyone living with HIV incarcerated in Connecticut um, between 2005 and 2012. So it was a couple thousand people. And we basically found that during incarceration, um, people's t people were successfully treated. Their T cell counts generally rose from the time of intake to the time of release by about 100. And their viral load generally dropped by a log. And so um, this is kind of what I was mentioning before. Um, so we had about 29% uh, of people entering the system with uh, viral suppression, and about 70% of people leaving the system with viral suppression. People do really well while they're incarcerated. So we look at a lower limit of detection, although um, the older labs kind of don't have this viral load less than 50 cutoff. Uh, about 6% enter the, the system with maximal viral load suppression, about 23% leave. But 30% entered the system with um, meeting AIDS-defining criteria with the CD4 count less than 200, and that dropped about 16% by the time of release. So people in general experience very you know, positive HIV treatment outcomes during um, incarceration. And we looked at best predictors of having a successful, successfully achieving uh, viral suppression by the time of release. Um, women did better than men, um, but you know, the women had almost twice the odds of achieving viral suppression by the time of release. Part of that is that there's only one facility for women um, in the state of Connecticut, whereas there's um, uh, 14 different facilities for men where they're kind of bouncing around a little bit depending on their sentencing status. Um, and people who had, uh, I won't go into too much about what this, what this means, but people who had a, a less severe mental health disorders um, basically were more likely to have achieved viral suppression by the time of release. So the, the challenge is also to ensure that these benefits of HIV treatment <coughs> outcomes are sustainable post-release. Because in general, when people leave facilities, they fall apart. So this is um, another uh, woman that I saw um, 
this could really be any woman that I saw, um, but she, she was a 44-year-old woman with HIV. Her CD4 count was horrid, was nine, viral loaded greater than 100,000, and she had been reincarcerated multiple times for a violation of probation, which is the most common charge, these um, kind of nonsense, <laughs> violation of probation or parole or failure to appear at court or prostitution charges. I mean, that's the most common reason for people to be incarcerated. And she had had a lot of incarcerations, most recently a month prior. And she did okay during these short stints, um, you know, in terms of her HIV treatment outcomes. And every time she left, she fell apart. Why? Because every time she left, the, the discharge court run bus would drop her off, right, in the same neighborhood that she came from, right? And then she's left to deal with all of these other competing priorities. Her cocaine use, first and foremost, her housing, her safety, she was really dependent on her housing, uh, for, for her housing, uh, dependent on this um, uh, minister who was very sketchy and very violent. And um, <laughs> so her safety was an issue. This whole issue around reuniting with her family and her uh, boyfriend who was also very violent and her children who were under the care of her mother, dealing with her bipolar disorder, and then sort of the bottom, the last thing that she would deal with was her HIV. So in truth of it, every time she pops in and out, she just wouldn't deal with her HIV at all. Too many other things to deal with. And as a result, you know, there's a very high risk of mortality after people are released from prison. So this is sort of the landmark Binswanger study from Washington State, which really shows that there's an overall increased mortality three to three and a half times higher uh, for released prisoners um, compared to the general population, and that there's a 12.5 times higher risk of mortality in the first two weeks post-release. Why? The, it's basically overdose. I mean, it, it's also it, HIV less so, um, but uh, violent deaths, homicide, uh, motor vehicle accidents, and uh, eventually liver disease. But that two-week period post-release is, is critical for people relieving prison. Um, and this was a study from Texas um, really showing that very few people even access their um, antiretroviral therapy <laughs> leaving prison. No matter what you do, you can provide them with vouchers, you can, you, in Connecticut, provide them with a 30-day uh, free supply of all their medications, you can give them appointments. People just will not pick up their meds after release. So this was a cohort study of people with HIV released from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, uh, their prison systems, about 2,000 people. They did have an AIDS drug assistance program, but it really wasn't convenient. Most people didn't access it. And so only 5% of patients picked up their antiretrovirals within 10 days, 18% within 30 days, and, and only 30% within 60 days post-release. So overall, you end up with almost 90% of people experiencing a treatment interruption on release, and that treatment interruption can last greater than 60 days. So by that point, you know, for some of the medications especially, you've already um, experienced treatment failure and the potential for, um, for drug-resistant mutations. Um, this was uh, the kind of our look at things um, from Connecticut. Again, that same cohort of people with HIV in Connecticut um, 
who, uh, between 2005 and 2012, they were both uh, prison and jail populations. So basically anyone, anyone incarcerated in Connecticut. And we basically found, we looked at sort of the effect of recidivism, which was uh, a return to a prison or jail after a period of community exposure. Basically found while well, about half of those people had successfully achieved viral suppression by the time of release, they just fell off again uh, after that period of community exposure. So by the time they come back into prisons or jails, only about 30% uh, still have maintained that viral suppression, although some have argued this is really a regression to the community mean, which about you know somewhere between 20 and 30% have viral suppression. But that's, that's an awfully big drop off. Um, I will say uh, that uh, this drop-off is worse for women. Um, this was a multi-site study that uh, we participated in, uh, people with HIV leaving jail. So jails in general, much higher turnover, uh, much kind of less stable populations in a lot of ways. Basically showing that um, baseline, uh, this, so this is while people are in jail, it's kind of pretty similar uh, between men and women in terms of engaging in care, having a recent HIV care provider. Um, but six months after release, only half of women still had a usual HIV care provider. 39% had um, taken any antiretrovirals in the past week. 28% had been um, maximally adherent, and only 18% experienced um, viral suppression compared to 30% of men. So kind of getting back to this idea of having competing priorities that interfere with care, HIV kind of gets pushed down to the bottom of the list. So when we talk about post-release interventions, you can kind of think about them in terms of our um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? At the base, you have to have your basic subsistence needs, your shelter, food, employment, safety. Although for some of my patients, I would argue that uh, kind of dealing with issues with their drug dependence becomes the basic necessity. But okay, then you have your issues around drug dependence, dealing around mental health, and sort of HIV often ends up last. But we can deal with the basic subsistence needs in terms of case management. Um, we call it pre-release discharge planning. Um, we can deal with um, their substance abuse, their HIV, their mental illness with adherence interventions, right? We're saying that part of the reason why people do so well while they're incarcerated is because we're swallowing, watching them swallow their pills. You know, what does it look like if we can um, maybe put that into a community-based context? can treat their substance use disorders, that's a great concept. Maybe prevent them from, from having to be incarcerated at all. We can treat their mental illness and then we can deal with um, risk behavior modification in a lot of ways. So intensive strength-based case management is something that's sort of used um, uh, in a lot of facilities um, as part of pre-release discharge planning, particularly for people with HIV. So during incarceration, we can do a needs assessment. All right, what, what are your barriers to care after release? Can we talk about transportation and start getting you hooked up to that? If you're Medicaid, uh, if you were disenrolled from Medicare or Medicaid, can we reinitiate your application? Right? Otherwise, you're sending people out into community with no insurance, they don't have any identification often, maybe not a permanent address to list on an application, but at least we can sort of get these things rolling while they're still incarcerated. Um, 
we can talk to them about their HIV and um, link them to an appointment, um, make their appointments for them to their um, primary care provider, their mental health provider, a housing coordinator, a social services provider, and somehow you know help link this um, communication really between correctional systems and community-based systems. Um, in Connecticut, we have a program called TLC, uh, Transition Links to the Community, in which um, the case manager actually meets with everyone living with HIV uh, pre-release, but within uh, 30 days of release, and then they meet with them again uh, the week after release out in the community, and so it kind of helps link care. There's been sort of... Um, you know, compared to nothing, compared to no discharge planning, there are much um, higher rates of acceptance of people actually showing up to their first HIV appointment after release, but there's sort of variable data on whether or not this ultimately helps them get retained in HIV care continuously, or whether it ultimately sustains HIV treatment outcomes. David Wool um, in 2011 published a very sort of um, controversial paper showing that there's no benefit for intensive case-based management, um, at least in terms of retaining people in care. But it can at least link, it's at least something. In Connecticut, how is that position funded? Um, the um, TLC? Yeah. Um, they are, uh, they are, they are like a, they are funded by a separate, um, it's like a private organization, and I think part of that has to do with the funds from that uh, case, that uh, Dobie Meacham uh, case, it uh, guaranteed funding for that transition link to the community program. So it's a state position? It's a state position, yeah. Um, Dr. Altiz also um, did uh, try to do directly observed therapy on the community. We have a big blue bus, a community health care van that goes around um, all throughout New Haven. And um, he randomized people to either get their antiretroviral therapy as directly observed um, or as self-administered therapy. And, you know, as you might expect, the people who got directly observed therapy, even after release from prison and not in the community, but 78% of them um, achieved an undetectable viral load at six months after release, compared to about half who got self-administered therapy. Unfortunately, and as you might expect, this kind of intensive, expensive intervention is really hard to, um, to sustain. And so after the randomized control trial was finished, people, again, kind of fell out of care. So it, it, it's very challenging to sort of sustain the benefits. We can do um, evidence-based uh, pharmacological treatments for substance use disorders. Um, we were we just talking about that. There's, uh, you know, in terms of medication-assisted therapies, we can certainly treat people's opioid use disorders. We can treat their alcohol use disorders. We can offer them intensive behavioral interventions for their stimulant use disorders, cocaine use disorders, and that not only helps retain people in HIV care, but it also helps keep them out in the community and, and not in jail or prison. That effective substance use disorder treatment really is effective um, HIV prevention and justice involvement prevention. So, um, after incarceration, people go all sorts of places. Not everyone just gets dumped um, by the courtroom bus back at their same um, housing unit. Some people can go to transitional housing programs or halfway houses. They can go to um, sober houses, shelters, probation, parole. 
And again, all of these community-based kind of supervised places are opportunities to access people. Um, it's, uh, I've been working with probation lately. It's very challenging. There's a lot of um, red tape to, to get through to try to access um, populations, but these are you know, ways to, to get at people for um, health interventions. And to deliver, you know, our package of HIV prevention, which um, not only includes um, harm reduction, like clean injecting equipment or um, male and female condoms, but also includes PrEP. And that's a whole other talk. Um, I'll just sort of finish up recently by talking, uh, you know, try to finish up by talking about a couple of hot, hot topics. Um, that are, are relevant to delivering care to this population. One is sort of the impact of health care reform. So, you know, think what you will about the Affordable Care Act, and I don't know how it's affected um, all of your practices, but, um, you know, there's, there are a lot of implications in the Affordable Care Act for delivering HIV care and delivering uh, care in general uh, to criminal justice populations. One is that um, there is an expressed interest in Medicaid expansion and enrolling people across the criminal justice continuum, which is that whole messy first slide I showed you, um, that uh, there's the potential for, for with Medicaid expansion for in, enrolling more people and for continuing um, their Medicaid even during incarceration as opposed to either suspending or disenrolling them. Um, the, uh, the best I could see um, from the White House website is that um, people do not qualify for enrolling while they're actively incarcerated, except for cases pending disposition. So I think that means all the people who are in a facility but are pending adjudication, so they're in that kind of left-hand side of the, of the criminal justice continuum, they can still enroll in Medicaid. Um, and uh, good to know, prisoners are excluded from the individual mandate, so they can't get fined for not, not having health care. Um, uh, we do, you know, Affordable Care Act does have expanded coverage for behavioral health treatment and substance abuse treatment, which can really benefit people after release. There is the potential for advancing health information technology. Um, so up until uh, last month, um, Connecticut's prison facilities were still on paper charts. Um, so we have a huge warehouse of um, backlogged paper charts. It's not very efficient in terms of maintaining continuity of care. So they're just rolling out um, electronic health records that can hopefully facilitate communication with community-based providers um, on you know both forward and, and backward um, communication. The other beneficial thing is um, for people who are who are being released that um, uh, HIV is no longer considered a pre-existing condition, so people can enroll. Um, the other kind of hot topic is this sort of idea that we're undergoing a period of correctional reform, which if we want to do anything to deal with this epidemic of mass incarceration is sort of necessary. So I don't know how many of you tuned into this, but you know Obama was the first president uh, to ever set foot in a federal correctional facility. Um, it's amazing, like it took this long. Um, but uh, you know there is a focus around reducing mandatory minimums, which is you know really about um, getting rid of the three strikes you're out law, um, 
not incarcerating everyone um, with a substance use disorder. There is more and more a focus, given how expensive it is to incarcerate someone, there is um, more and more focus on these jail diversion programs and alternatives to incarceration, which really help try to help keep people out in the community longer. Now, it won't be helpful in terms of HIV treatment outcomes unless there's also an expansion of community-based resources, but um, there is the idea that more and more people uh, will be out in the community under correctional supervision as compared to, and maybe not under supervision at all, as compared to um, in facilities. Um, there are uh, jail diversion programs, and this is sort of based on the state, uh, but in Connecticut anyway, there are um, mental health courts, drug courts, and veterans courts, where um, if people sort of meet one of these criteria, they go through a separate court system, which pushes them into, um, for example, like a 30-day substance abuse treatment program instead of sending them to jail. Um, there's uh, movements towards ban the box, um, which is uh, to increase employment opportunities for people with uh, prior convictions. So this idea that uh, employers can't necessarily, um, shouldn't necessarily ask people about whether or not they've had um, prior convictions, um, especially if it's not, but, or to ask them only when they're further along down the hiring process. So all these things kind of increase opportunities for people to stay out in the community and um, yeah, longer. And, and then, of course, this idea, um, now that we have a, an exploding heroin epidemic in this country, to really expand um, community-based uh, drug treatment programs. So hopefully the take-home messages are that um, mass incarceration and HIV are really colliding, intersecting, catastrophic epidemics. Um, that the criminal justice system does provide a number of opportunities for public health interventions in terms of uh, diagnosing, managing HIV, and linking people to care. Um, hope I've shown you that you know for for diagnosis anyway we get a lot more bang for the buck when it's uh, routine screening that's opt-out um, kind of overcoming some of those logistical barriers um, HIV management you know correctional facilities can be an opportunity to both initiate and uh, or continue antiretroviral therapy although it's really scary to be sort of talking about the benefit of incarceration. So we just like to say that, you know, incarceration should be the healthcare provider of last resort. Um, and uh, this opportunity to, to link people to care. Then the, just this idea for all of you who do primary care, work with HIV, people with HIV in other settings, that justice involvement is a marker, uh, both for HIV risk and for discontinuous HIV care. So it's worthwhile asking, um, it doesn't necessarily matter if someone had a conviction 20 years ago, but I do tend to ask my patients, you know, in the past 30 days, have you spent the night in jail, prison, or lockup? And it just is a sort of a part of that routine screening. Um, and I think that's it. Um, I'm happy to take any questions. I'm happy to hang around for questions, or you want to email me questions or conversation. I'm happy to, to continue it, but thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Thank you. We have the room for a while yet, so for people who want to stay, we can take questions. So in New Hampshire, um, I think in the prison, I'm looking at uh, one of our nurses over here, in the prison system, things go reasonably well as far as testing and routine aging the care. 
<coughs> providing treatment, and they actually send the positive patients out um, for special care. There's few enough in the prison system that they haven't actually brought them into the prison. So we tend to see our patients starting to play after they're incarcerated. Um, you know, discharge planning is non-existent. Um, release planning is non-existent. The place where there's really no, what I can see, attempt at coordination of services is in the jails. Right. Just such fast turnover. Yeah. And there's just nothing. Have you tried to do anything with the jails? Do you know anyone has? Yeah. So we have um, intensive um, case management um, as part of pre-release planning in jails. They miss people, um, but um, yeah, we tend we tend to because we have that transition link to the community program. Um, we tend to be able to, if we don't identify them while they're incarcerated, we can connect them um, with a local case manager in their city after release. Um, so we do have pretty good luck there, although it's a lot harder. Um, for the women, like I said, there's only one facility, so it's a jail, minimum, medium, and maximum security prison. So all the programs that are there for the in the prison are there in the jail <coughs> as well. Um, but it's a challenge. There's a lot of different models for like how to deliver HIV care. So some states do, like you're talking about, they bring people out for HIV specialty care. Um, there's my understanding is there's sometimes a preference. People sometimes like that because they can see their usual providers. Sometimes inmates don't like that because then the correctional officers know where they're taking people. So there's kind of this lack of privacy. There, uh, in Western Massachusetts, there's been a move to bring the community providers into the facilities to see their own patients there, uh, which is hard on the providers, but um, but it's kind of nice for the inmates. And then. Um, other states contract out with um, with specialists, which is what, for a long time, what Connecticut had done. Um, UConn Correctional Managed Healthcare contracted with Yale for us to go in and deliver all the HIV care. And when budget cuts happened last December, um, they started just Skyping all the HIV care from UConn, which is a whole other ball of wax. So every, every state kind of has, it just, and it's sort of like, Someone was saying, sort of based on the prevalence, the need, and the um, the funding. Yeah. So, is there any limitations on treatment regimens or formulary management? No, it's the you exact. Have to, you have to juggle that. Type of, no, them. it should for HIV. It, it's it's by the guidelines, and there is a delay. Like if new medic, you know, Genvoyo was just approved. So for new medications coming out. Um, there is a delay to getting it into facilities, um, but everything that's available, you know, by the guidelines, is available in the facility. Now, that's not the case for hepatitis C, where the direct-acting antivirals are just not happening yet. But um, should be. Yeah, I think one of the things that stood out as as you were speaking um, is really trying to do discharge planning from the beginning when they come in. Yeah, that's where we. That's where we. We drop off terribly, so if they're our own patients that are coming in, we don't lose them so much because they're connected with us. But new patients coming in and trying to figure out when that discharge is going to happen, they don't know, we don't know, and they disappear. Yeah, and sometimes it's hard. You know, someone has a court date pending, and then the you know the case gets dropped, or then they get sentenced to probate. You know, and they go out like without any warning. Um, that can be that can be really 
challenging. I think that's the opportunity for that intake health screening to be something really meaningful, right? Oh, you have HIV. Well, where do you usually get your care? Where do you know? Who are you expecting to be discharged to? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And we have no discharge plan. No, there's no pre, what you call the pre, pre-release, pre-release planning. There's yeah, there's certainly that. no state funding put into mm -hmm. the, the release planning. There's no equivalent to that program you were mentioning. So it's really people coming out and having to find their own way, find their own appointments. Yeah, you know, if they're diagnosed in prison and we haven't seen them, they're referred to us. They choose whether they come and see us you know, while incarcerated. Then, as Marge said, we might see them and potentially get them started on therapy. Um, and we'll tell them, you know, give us a call, right. get out. And, but as Marge says, we just, the vast majority, we just lose antidotes and after release. And, you know, it's a big geography that these three prisons, and you said it's just one women's prison, so right. they could live 100 miles north of here. And, you know, add to, adding to the barriers of engaging in care is. That is one. I mean, that is one perk of this whole Skype idea. You know, the telemedicine and sort of being able to connect with people and delivering care remotely. Um, just another way to connect. Your nurses have been interested in that potentially for case management. It's one more tool. This is. This is a, I think Connecticut's got a, a pretty, a very progressive. Program here. Okay. So, how does that compare with other states in the Northeast or states in general? It, it mm -hmm. seems like this you're kind of a leading uh, Rhode Island. So yeah, so Rhode Island because of the because everything kind of goes through um, Miriam Hospital right. in Providence. Um, Rhode Island has a pretty tight system, and and those those are sort of our cousin clinical researchers. There's a whole big HIV in prisons program there. Um, Rikers, which actually has a lot of people, does does quite well in terms of pre-release, you know, yeah. discharge planning and, and treatment delivery during incarceration. Um, other states outside of the Northeast, it's it's tough. I mean, yeah. as you can see, like in Louisiana, they weren't even testing, right. and that you know that's like a hotbed for HIV. It's right. you know, um, so it just depends on where. The other thing that makes Connecticut different is it's only it's one of only four states that has an integrated correctional system where both the prisons and jails are under state jurisdiction and it has a correctional managed health care that delivers uni you know, like uniform care to all the facilities. Right. When it's you know, a state where there's facilities all over the place and they're under different jurisdictions, right? Maybe someone gets their therapy in a state prison but not in like the local jail. Under control, of the sheriff. You know, it's, so it's just, yeah, it's it's tough to coordinate like that. Um, but there's good reason to to do it and invest in it. You know, it's a lot easier to take care, like just continue people on successful therapy than have them fall in and out all the time. Have you tried to push on Hep C treatment on anyone yet? Is that you know, clear, strong indication. You know, patient has advanced disease. Yes. No luck. So no luck. The only times we can seem to get direct inter direct acting antivirals are for people who are started on it in the community. They'll continue it, but they're still going interferon-based therapy at this point. You know, it's awful. So no, basically, no one's getting treated. And the issue is the cost, and that 
you know, we say like there's a cost saving benefit ultimately, obviously, for treating in terms of avoiding hep C related complications. The idea is that the prison system will not see that benefit, right? Because it's too far away. Um, so it's like the best thing is just to get people out of prison <laughs> and get them connected to care. You think there's an Eighth Amendment uh, rationale for arguing against inferior on this cruel and unusual? Exactly. <laughs> I'm with you for 18 months, right? Like, I'm with you. I'm with you. So often it's a matter of getting people even just screened and then connected to care in the community. Great. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you so you. much. It's a pleasure. So reunions are happening.